0: Fathers, in a way that is worshipful to you. Let us celebrate as fathers with our children in a way that is worshipful to you, that no one would put us on a pedestal or idolize us, that we would not put anyone on a pedestal or idolize them, but that it would all just be worship and glory to Christ. Father, I ask that for those who are experiencing pain today, whether it's a dad who's gone or a dad who hurt our dad, who wasn't there, that you would so overwhelm us with your love, your grace, and mercy, that in the deepest part of our being, we would know you as father, we would know you as friend, and that you would make up the difference because you died for the sins of our fathers by sending your son. So, Father, minister love. Bring comfort as only you can and help us to celebrate today this idea of fatherhood. Speak to us through your word as we look at something you're very passionate about, Father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you are in Matthew 25 this morning, the first thing you'll notice is that we are not in the gospel of Mark. We love preaching through books of the Bible because we think that it helps fulfill what Paul said in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders. We want to declare to you the full counsel of God. We hope that there's a day in the life of the Crossing Church that somebody will stand up here and preach. And it'll be the, 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 the last verse of the Bible that we haven't preached because we preach preached through all the books of the Bible. We hope that day is coming many years from now. And we, we want to preach the books of the Bible because we can't avoid any topic because the Bible deals with, with just about everything. And so we, we can't hide from things that are difficult or hard. But we also like to preach the books of the Bible because we believe that the Word and the Spirit of God accomplish the work of God. And so if we just proclaim the Scriptures, the Spirit of God is going to take the Word of God and do a work in us that, that none of us could figure out how to do. Like We can't sit down and say, here's the problem, let me, let me come up with solutions for your problem. We can't have a cool creative series about seven ways that you can be more awesome than you already are and fix the things that are wrong in you. So let's just let the word of God do its work as the spirit of God empowers it. But we do occasionally see the value of jumping out of the book series to deal with some topics. And in January, we do that. We preach through the Word. We preach about prayer. We preach about racial reconciliation, sanctity of life. September, we'll take a few weeks to look at specifically who we are as a Crossing Church and what we're doing, our our mission, our vision. Sometimes we, sometimes we may do a Christmas series like we did last year or maybe an Easter series one year. Maybe occasionally we'll even do a Mother's Day sermon or a Father's Day sermon, but Today is a standalone topic that's not a Father's Day sermon specifically, but it's something that our Father in heaven cares very much about. And that is how are we engaging or not engaging with those in poverty? Those who are in need. Those who are oppressed. Okay, why that? Why did you just pick that? We're we just throwing darts at the wall? Well, we're, we're trusting the Spirit's leading us. Besides all the biblical commands and principles that we're going to look at that call us and send us to care for the poor, the commands are always there in the Bible. So just besides that, we'll get to it in a minute. These commands were brought to our attention as we're going through this process of trying to join the Salma family of churches, this church planting network. Um, Y'all know, we have talked about this before, we're, we're trying, in the process of trying to join Acts 29. So they've taken us through the assessment, they've given us some conditions. We'll be sharing more of those with you as we go forward about what those are. Um, all these conditions are to help us be healthy and faithful and fruitful, right? We're also trying to join Soma in one of their, their church, as one of their church plants. One of the conditions of being a Soma church is agreeing and practicing what they call marks of a healthy Soma church plant. And there's actually nine of them. I don't know if they know that there's nine marks. Might want to tell them that. But uh, one of the marks of being a healthy Soma church plant is we initiate plans for doing justice and remembering the poor. As we were walking through that as leaders, we're like, man, we, we, we need to do a better job of that. We need to be more intentional. So let's find a Sunday, maybe that comes out of the book of Mark. And well there's not going to be a passage in Mark that really deals with that for a long time. So. Let's find a Sunday, let's do Father's Day, because our Father in Heaven cares very much about this, and let's, let's kind of throw, put a marker on the ground, put a stake in the ground, and say, we care about this, this is who we are, It's who God has made us to be, we want to do this well in our city. And so let's examine that this morning. What does the Bible say about our relationship to the poor and those in poverty? As we walk through all these passages, I kind of organize them into three different uh, uh, statements about what the Bible says about this. Number one, God identifies with the poor and the helpless in society. God identifies with the poor and helpless in society. Psalm sixty-eight five. He is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. Is God in His holy habitation? As Tim Keller points out about this passage, this is unique about God compared to other gods in ancient cultures and even to the the common everyday belief system that the Jews had, because there was an association with. God and those who were successful and those who were powerful and those who were wealthy. In other words, there was a, a, an association, if, if things were going well in your life, if you were powerful, if you were wealthy, then obviously God is favoring you and blessing you, and if things aren't going well in your life, then obviously you've sinned and God is cursing you, judging you. This, this, we see this in the book of Job, Job's friends tell him this, we see this all the way in the Gospels, in John chapter 9, when the disciples asked Jesus, why is this man born blind, that he sinned or his parents? And so to have a God who created all things to identify with those who are helpless and hurting the the marginalized, the oppressive society, this is radical. But this is who God is. Proverbs 14, 31 Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So how you treat poor people reflects on what you're saying about God, how you're treating God. There's such an association between God and the poor and the oppressed. Proverbs 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Again, see the connection between God and the poor and the oppressed. Jesus said, in, going into the New Testament, in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, we like the passage in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. Well, we can handle that, and that, that's essential, it's important. To to realize you need a Savior, you have to be poor in spirit. Spiritually bankrupt, you have to recognize, i got nothing to offer you, God. I come to the table with nothing. I need you because I have nothing. But Jesus in Luke 6 says, blessed are the poor. And it's not that there's a blessing of God just because people are poor. But as we'll see in a little bit, there is an inherent blessing that comes with being poor that, that allows you to see your need before God easier than if you're not poor. And we'll, we'll deal with more of that in a little bit. Luke four seventeen through 19 Jesus sits before his hometown in the synagogue, reads from the prophet of Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the mission of the Messiah. That's what he's come to do. The passage that I ask you to turn to in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 34, there's a lot of debate about where this happens eschatologically, where does this happen in the end times, when does this take place. Uh, But regardless of when it takes place, know for certain or see for certain the connection between the poor and the oppressed and Jesus. It says beginning in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will say to him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Or when do you see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he'll say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will answer, also answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God identifies with the poor and the helpless in society so that there is a connection between how we treat them is how we treat him. See that throughout the pages of Scripture. Secondly, God commands his people to care for the poor or help the poor, and advocate for the oppressed. God commands his people to care for the poor and advocate for the oppressed. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 15, verse 7 and 8. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand behind against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. A few verses later, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you with all your work and all that you undertake. For there will never be cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor, in your land. Isaiah fifty eight, verse six and seven. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the hands of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Isaiah 58, a passage where the, the righteous, the religious, the moral are being identified. There are those who go to the temple, those who do these fasts, who jump through all these religious hoops, and God is saying, here is the fast I designed. Not for you to jump through all these religious hoops. The fast I choose, the fast I want, is for you to do these things: to loose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house. This is what I want to see my people doing. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute. In other words, speak up for those who can't speak up. Give a voice to the voiceless. For the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Be an advocate. Coming to the New Testament, Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Work hard, don't steal. Why? So we can pile it up and enjoy it? Or so we can give it to those who have need? 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, given in the context, a verse we know really well if you've ever heard a sermon on giving to the church, but it's given in the context of Paul taking up an offering for the poor believers in Jerusalem when he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The church doesn't just need your money to pay the lights and pay staff. And buy stuff for ministry. This is, the, we're, we're helping our brothers and sisters in Christ who are poor. So give generously, cheerfully, sacrificially. Jonathan Edwards said this, who's, who's not known for hyperbole. Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in more peremptory, urgent manner? Peremptory is just imperative command. Peremptory, urgent manner. Than the command to give to the poor. Like what stronger command do you see in Scripture than this? It's huge. God commands His people to minister to the poor, to speak up, to be an advocate for the oppressed. And that brings us thirdly to this God's people help the poor, and those who don't are not God's people and will be judged. See this in these Scriptures. God's people help the poor, and those who don't are not God's people and will be judged. Now, I am not saying that those who help the poor are God's people. There's a lot of people who help the poor. There's all kinds of social services and and organizations around the world who do good things for the poor. They might be doing it to earn their salvation. They might be doing it to pay off the guilt that they feel for the, the wealth that they have. So just helping the poor doesn't mean you're God's people. But God's people will help the poor because they're God's people. That's what God's people do. And if you're unengaged in that, over time, you will prove that you're not God's people. And instead, we'll be judged for that. All right, see the verses that, that, that speak to this. Oh, I mean, all, all through the Old Testament, this was one of the main sins of the nation of Israel. You are. Not taking care of the widows, the orphans, and aliens, the strangers in the land. You're oppressing them. You're not caring for the poor. I I could just give you dozens and dozens of verses. Let me give you a couple. Jeremiah 5, 26-29. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek they know no bounds and deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the, right, defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? One of the primary ways that the people of God in the Old Testament were in sin and rebellion against God for which they were judged was how they treated the poor and the oppressed. They walked all over them. They ignored them. Ezekiel 16, 48, and 49. As I live, declares the Lord your God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Wait, wait, wait. I thought the sin of Sodom was, you know, the sin of Sodom. That's why the angels came and wiped them out. That wasn't their only sin. This was also their sin. They had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor needing. Coming to the New Testament, even clearer, James 2, 14-17, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Genuine faith doesn't say to the poor and needy, Go take care of yourself, go warm and be warm and be filled, and do nothing to help. Genuine faith proves the genuineness of its faith by the works that it does. God's people help the poor and the needy because they have a genuine relationship with God. He is their Father, they are His people. And they will, over time, more and more have his heart, have his mind, have his desires. And so more and more over time, they will do these things. Proving that they really are God's people. If we're just religious, if we're just pretending, we're not going to have the mind of Christ. We're not going to have the heart of God for the poor and the oppressed. And so even if we do it for a little while that looks good, we won't have the proper motivation. We'll be doing it out of guilt or trying to earn our salvation, and we'll quit thus proving we weren't truly God's people. 1 John 3, 16-18, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How can we say we have the love of God if we don't love people in action? The Matthew 25 passage that we looked at earlier, this relationship between how we treat the poor and the oppressed is a reflection about how we're treating Christ. As you've done to the least of these, you've done to me, Jesus says. The New Testament was known, the New Testament church was known for how they took care of each other's needs, how they ministered to the poor and the oppressed. Acts 2.45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need were characterized by this. Acts four thirty two 32-35. Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need The early church was marked from this very beginning by this generosity to each other this generosity to help each other out to help the poor and the needy By Acts 6 you had this widespread distribution of food program to the widows to not just Jewish widows but Hellenistic Greek widows so much so fast so quickly that the apostle says we can't handle this we need help And so they appointed seven men who were the forerunners of deacons to come and and begin to do this work to take care of the needs of the people, take care of the needs of the widows. The early church was a place where widows would be cared for. Widows in that society lived at the mercy of society. No one cared for them. They would just become beggars on the street or prostitutes. The church says, we'll take them in. We'll take care of them. We'll sell stuff if we had to sell stuff to take care of these widows. They're not going to go hungry, they're not going to go without shelter. We'll become a place where widows will be cared for. Babies were left in the streets in the Greco-Roman society that weren't wanted, discarded, left just to die in the sun. The church would go on baby runs and pick these babies up and say, "We'll raise them? We'll adopt them. They become our children. We'll become a father to the fatherless. This was the early church. And all through the early church, it was built and exploded among the common people, the poor people. It's always been the case. It's not because the poor need a crutch and so they reach out to God. It's because the poor aren't blinded by material prosperity and so they see their need easier. They can't pretend. There's nothing to mask their need. They're desperate. I need food. I need clothing. I need shelter. I'm that dependent on this God who created me to provide all these things. Which is why Jesus said, blessed are the poor. They get to the spiritual need quicker because they're in such a physical need. Which is why Jesus also said, it's harder for a a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Flip that. It's harder for a rich man to go into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples says, well, that's impossible. A camel can't go through the eye of a needle. And Jesus says, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Rich men can be saved. This is in response to the rich young ruler who came to Jesus' asking for eternal life. But it's only possible by God's grace and mercy. Why? Because the wealthy, the rich, have their need of God, their need of Jesus, masked by everything they have. And when I say rich, as you'll see later on, I'm essentially talking about almost everyone in America. Okay? Compared to the world, compared to history, just about everybody in America. And with all of our material comforts, with all of our disposable income, with all the insurance that we buy, I mean, who's who's worried about their house burning down? As long as nobody is killed, let it burn. i build a better house, have more money. Right? We We don't live with this... Daily bread. We got more food in our house than that we can eat. All we got to do is go to the grocery store and they got more food than you can buy. And we got plenty of money to buy it. So much so that we're eating out half the time, paying way more money than we should pay for food. And so we can be masked by our need because our material or physical comforts are so well cared for. We don't see how spiritually dependent we are upon God. But the poor see it quicker, faster. Because they're so needy physically. I mean, we experience the same thing when we get sick. We cry out to God. You know, God heal me or take me home. I'm tired of being sick. Kill me or heal me, right? I'm miserable. But as soon as we're well, blown and going. We don't need God anymore. We're not desperate. The early church wasn't some socialistic society where no one owned property. Everybody was just kind of like this group thing. Everybody owned property. They had private property, but people were willing to sell it and did sell it to take care of each other. It wasn't just a group of uh, enablers and lazy people who lived off of each other. So you go to the book of Thessalonians, and the Thessalonians, some of them were so convinced Jesus was about to return that they quit working and lived off the generosity of others. And Paul said to them, if a man won't work, he can't eat. So it's not a call to laziness. It's not a call to this commune of living. Tim Keller says what the Bible means by, by justice is this: three things. Equal treatment, special concern, and generosity. Equal treatment, special concern, and generosity. Equal treatment is we treat people equally. It doesn't matter what race, what gender, what creed, what nationality, whatever. We treat them the same. We're all created in the image of God. Secondly, general, doing justice ministry is special concern. So for those who are oppressed, needy, poor, they get special concern. Wait, aren't we supposed to treat everybody equally? So, so really, we're going to treat the billionaire the same way we would the homeless guy? That makes sense to you? No, it doesn't make sense. There are people who are poor and oppressed and needy. They receive special concern. We still see everyone equal in the eyes of God because they're all created in the image of God. But some people need special concern. And then, third, we we do it with generosity. We give. We sacrifice. We do whatever it takes to help the needy and the oppressed. God's people have been and will always be marked by obeying these commands. And those who don't will eventually show themselves not to be God's people. Like, if you hear these commands, you see these biblical passages, and you're like, not me. I'm not interested in any of that. That is a scary place to be. Like, you should be really concerned about your heart. You should be seriously concerned about your salvation if you hear these commands to love and serve the poor in our culture and you're like, not doing it. So take heed. Take heed. So then why don't we, or why aren't we obeying these clear commands of Scripture? So it literally, it could be ignorance. Like you could be here this morning, you're like, man, I didn't know the Bible was so serious about this. Like, God really takes this serious. And, and now I know. And now you do know. So now you're accountable. Congratulations. Glad you came. It definitely is sin when we don't. You know, we're selfless, we're heartless, we're merciless, we're apathetic, or maybe we're timid or cowardly. We want to analyze and discuss it to death, and we're just paralysis by analysis. We, we talk it to death and we never do anything. That, that could be it. Sometimes we're noble in our sin. We don't want to be enablers or take advantage, be taken advantage of. So we don't help people because we're just feeding their sinful habits or they may take advantage of me and I've got to be a good steward of my resources so I can't be taken advantage of and waste God's resources. Like, like we don't waste any of God's resources on Twinkies and whatever else we, we, we spend money on. Now, now look, we should, we should not give to something that we know is leading to sin. Right? Like uh, me and, I think it's me and Abigail, uh, maybe Emma Grace. We're, we're going down 18th Street headed to uh, our 21 day. And this guy was on the side with, with a sign. You know, you usually try to avoid eye contact. You wanna look at him? I'm very skeptical about most of those guys. I think they're just out there making a living, right? Um, but we we're at a red light, so I just glanced over and his sign said something like, I'm not gonna lie, I just need beer money. And I was like, Wow, that's a man trying to get my phone out and take his picture, it's amazing. I couldn't get it out, couldn't get his picture. Like I'm not gonna give that guy twenty dollars to go buy beer. It's not gonna happen. Um, but that doesn't mean we never engage just because we're worried about those kinds of things. We definitely don't engage and we're not engaging because it is it is hard and messy work. Loving and serving and giving to the poor is hard. And if you've ever done it, uh, it's very hard and messy. Uh, uh, the last church I was pastor at, uh, Perrin Baptist. Um, the the town of Sterling, the churches in Sterlington had come together and they would give money to this benevolence fund that we would oversee. Um, the, the church at Sterlington. Um, and our secretary would have the checkbook and people would fill out an application. And anybody in Sterlington who had financial needs would come to the church, uh, apply, sit through an interview process with me, and then and then maybe or maybe not get a check. And I was so excited when I got there. I was like, this is so awesome. Like people are coming to the church who, who need stuff and I can share the gospel with them. I could talk to them about Jesus. And so, like the first several months, man, I get people in my office and I'm talking to them. And it didn't take long for me to realize they would say whatever I wanted to hear. Because we were giving them a check. Oh, there everybody was a Christian. Everybody loved Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were going to be at church on Sunday, in fact. When are your services? Ten forty-five. I think ten thirty. Whatever. These people may come. Nobody ever showed up, and I, I got so frustrated that I was like, "Forget it, Judy. You just do the application. You give them the check. I don't even want to talk to them anymore." Because it was so hard and messy. I just disengaged because it was so frustrating. So it's hard and messy. Like first we need to check our motives and make sure we're engaging with the poor with the right motives. Because we've been shown mercy, we show mercy. Because to love the poor is to love Christ. Because it opens doors for the gospel. It's not helpful for us to serve the poor and us become their functional saviors. We've rescued them, now they look at us as their savior. We brought them out of the pit of their financial despair and so look at us, how amazing we are. It's not helpful to treat the poor like projects. I've seen poor families kind of adopted by the churches like it was a little homeroom project. We're going to collect clothes and Christmas gifts and gift cards and give these people what we have. We want them to have the American dream. Like the poor people don't need the American dream. Materialism consumerism is killing America. Consuming America. They don't need more of that. And that's how some people are treated this is why most churches like ours, we have a better chance of becoming ethnically diverse than economically diverse. Like we typically live and work around people at the same income level and therefore church is kind of the same. It's really hard for the truly needy to become part of our gathering because they're very uncomfortable and frankly sometimes we're very uncomfortable. With my hospice job, I had this unique opportunity to, to be in the homes of The entire spectrum of economic ability. I've been in homes, seven-figure homes, amazing homes on lakes and bayous. You're just walking around like, this house is amazing. And I've been in homes that are equally breathtaking for how does anybody live here? You know, things are crawling around while you're sitting there talking to people. And I don't mean animals. And whenever I, it's kind of the same. I go to the rich and I'm like, gosh, these people, how do they ever see that they need Jesus? I mean, sometimes they're Christians, but a lot of times they're not. How do they ever see they need Jesus? They have everything. But with the poor, it's even a greater burden because I'm thinking, how can we as a crossing church ever reach people in this state? How can we ever minister to them? Get the gospel to them. There's so many barriers, not just economically, but educationally and and distance, and I mean, I've been in some neighborhoods as a neighborhood the past week in West Monroe. It looked like I was in another country. It's so impoverished. It's hard. It's messy. Not just locally, but internationally. It feels hopeless. The need is so great. Half the world's population, over three and a half billion people, almost ten times the population of America. Over half the world's population lives on two dollars and fifty cents a day or less. What do we do with that? We got more money than that sitting in our cars and change. How do you help that many people? So it's it's difficult. It's messy. So how do we how do we impact that? Let's let's be honest. Let's repent where we have sinned, where we are failing to engage the poor, and it's because of our sin. Let's be honest and let's repent. Definitely needs to happen. Let's learn where we've been ignorant. And then let's sacrifice and not be overwhelmed where we become apathetic and we don't do anything. Let's sacrifice and serve and go do the hard, necessary work of loving the poor. So, so what is the need? So worldwide, like I said, um, half the world's population lives on less than $2.50 a day. To think about it differently, if you make $25,000 a year, you are in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people. $25,000 a year, you're in the upper 10. If you make $50,000 a year, you're in the upper 1% of the world's wealthiest people. Welcome to the club. It would take about $9 billion to provide water and sanitation for all the world who need it, another $13 billion to provide food and nutrition to all who need it. That's $22 billion to take care of water, sanitation, food, and nutrition. By comparison, we spend eight million eight. That's a million billion. We spend eight billion dollars in the U.S. on cosmetics. Europe spends eleven billion on ice cream. Europe and the U.S. spend twelve billion on perfumes, seventeen billion on their pets, and fifty billion on cigarettes in Europe. Just to kind of see where we are in the industrialized West, and it, guys, it hasn't always been like this. Like, relatively speaking, in the history of human culture, this is a recent phenomenon. If you go back to the 1820s, the difference between the wealthiest and the poorest nation was a a ratio of 3 to 1. In 1992, it was 72 to 1 because of the Industrial Revolution. The wealthier had become vastly wealthier and the poor are still poor. So in the the course of human history, this is a, a new thing. Locally, the federal poverty rate as of 2015, is currently at this. If, if you, As an individual, if you make $11,880 or less, you're considered in poverty. For a family of two, it's $16,020. For a family of four, 243 dollars And for a family of six, 3,25. dollars So if you make that much money or less, you're in poverty. Louisiana, you might want to guess where we rank. Third third poorest state as a, as a percentage of people who are at, uh, in poverty. Who's ahead of us? Everybody knows. Mississippi and the District of Columbia. 18% of the people in Louisiana live at or below the poverty line. In Louisiana, of the seven largest cities, which city has the highest percentage of people in poverty? Take a stab. New Orleans, can I say that? Actually, what? Huh? Bash. That's a good guess. Streetport. Of the seven largest cities, Monroe. As of 2010, 21% of the households in Monroe, and of course we're talking about Monroe city limits, live in poverty. 30% of children in Monroe live in poverty, according to those statistics. So the need, guys, is right in front of us. We have resources, biblical commands. We have the Holy Spirit to help us do it right. So what do we do? What do we do? First, we pray. Before you just want to bust out the door, and start throwing money around and making it rain everywhere, let's just pray. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us. We want to be properly motivated. We want to do it out of love for Christ because he first loved us. We want to genuinely love the people we're serving and not just seeing them as projects. We want to pray and ask the Spirit to lead us and prepare us. Another thing that we can do is begin to build margin in your life with time and money so you can start either helping or preparing to help. Well, I don't have any money. I'm a college student. I have kids. Okay. If you have a Netflix subscription, you have money. If you ever go see a movie, you have money. If you ever go to a coffee shop you have money. If you ever eat out, you have money. So enough of this excuse, I don't have enough money. You have enough money if you have any disposable income. It's just a question of how much. So as you're praying, if you're married, talk to your spouse. If you're, if you're single, get with your DNA group and begin to talk about what, what number do I want to stick it at? What percentage or what set amount do I want set, to set aside, build margin in my life to begin to give to those who are needy? Now you could, you could do that sooner helping out internationally because there's, there's dozens of organizations that do good work that you can trust with your money that are helping the poor and needy around the world like compassion. Adopt a child with compassion. Be a game changer in their life. $38 a month. Eventually we want our mission communities engaged locally on this issue. So there will be some praying, some planning involved in that. But until then, pray and begin to build margin of, of time and money in your life. Like, like with time, just thinking, thinking through this as I was putting this together, I was like, all right, the guy who had the sign that wanted money for beer. I well, definitely wasn't giving him money for beer. But if I had margin built into my life, I could run to a store, grab a couple beers, go have one with him, and talk to him about Jesus. Like, why do you stand out here with a sign saying you need beer money? Like, what are you doing that for Ask the Spirit. Simple as this. Ask the Spirit. This is the heart of God. I want it to be my heart. It's definitely the heart of God. God, I want this to be my heart. I want to see people that you see them. I want to care about people the way you care about them. I want to love them the way you love them. Lead me to do this faithfully in a meaningful way for the glory of Christ in my life. That is a prayer God wants to answer. That is a prayer He will lead you in to obey if that's where your heart is desiring this morning. Lastly, I want to help us see what's most important in all of this, and that's to remember this. The people we're talking about are not statistics. They're not projects. They're people who have souls creating the image of God. And they don't need more money. They need Jesus. And they need the impact that Jesus brings to all of life. And they need people to love and walk with them through life. They need a gospel community. One of the best resources to come out in the last five or six years that is a necessary read, like there should be one person in every mission community who's, who's reading this book or read this book. When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself by Steve Corbett, Corbett and Brian Fikert. will go with that. In one section of the book, the authors share a series of responses. I'm going to post a bunch of other resources on the city this week. But they share a series of responses from a survey done by the World Bank to those in poverty. They were asked to describe your situation. Here's how some people in poverty around the world describe their poverty. In Moldova, someone said, for a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. In Latvia, this person said, During the past two years, we have not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house and feel comfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leaves one depressed, creates a constant feeling of unhappiness and a sense of low self-esteem. In Cameroon, the poor have a feeling of powerlessness and an inability to make themselves heard internationally and in North America, when poverty is described by those who are in poverty, it's not described in economic terms, but described in societal and relational terms. And those who have studied this extensively have come to see poverty not just as an issue of money and income, but an issue of relationships. In fact, in his book, Walking with the Poor, Bryant Myers describes poverty like this. Poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, That are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all of its meanings. Shalom being the peace, presence, the blessing, the favor of God. They don't have it. It's not just about money. If that is poverty, then money, education, guys, even those who who with good intentions want to evangelize the poor, get them to pray a prayer, jump the hoop so that when they die they go to heaven, if that's all they want to do, they're not helping the poor. Because what do they need right now? What do they need every day? They need gospel community. They need someone to walk with them through life and support them. We're going to have to take a more holistic, all-of-life approach that begins with the gospel, but it's more than just where they go when they die. How does the gospel bring life now in the midst of your poverty? But it definitely will include the gospel. It has to include the gospel. It will not become a good works club. Because the gospel is the story of the one who was rich and became poor so that we who are poor can become rich. The gospel is Jesus suffered so the oppressed could be set free. The gospel demands us to first admit our spiritual poverty and our need of Jesus so that the Savior can come and bring such life and transformation that we can be set free to serve and love those who are poor, who might be different than us, but we can enter into life and they can enter our life and we can have such a bond that economic differences don't separate us because we're one in Christ. We're the same family in Christ. The gospel can do this. And so this morning, see your poverty spiritually. See how much you need Jesus. Not just for salvation, but to obey these very hard and heavy commands. You can't do it apart from Him. So if you're here this morning, you've never come alive in Christ, and Jesus is convicting you of your sin, the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sin, your need of a Savior, call out to Him for salvation. Believe in Jesus for salvation. Trust in Him that He lived the life that we failed at. He loved the oppressed and the poor and the needy perfectly every day. He never had an off day. And he did it in a way that was for their good, never in a way that hurt them. He lived perfectly, fulfilled the law perfectly. And at the end of his life, he died for the sins of his people. He paid the price that we deserve to pay after living the life that we failed to live. And then when we trust, when we rest in Christ, when we're believing in Christ and his gospel, who he is and what he's done, then we come alive in Christ. We become a new person set free to obey the commands of God with the right reasons for the glory of Christ. And if, you, if you've done that, then celebrate that this morning as we eat this meal of, of the, the cup and the bread, the body, the blood of Christ. Celebrate who Christ is and what Christ has done. If you haven't done that, if you haven't come alive in Christ, you can do that while we're praying. Confess that you're a sinner, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus that He is alone the Savior. Talk to to one of us before you leave. Most of the people in this room can talk to you about Jesus and, and share the gospel with you. Eat lunch with somebody before you go home. See your poverty spiritually. See the abundant grace of our Lord Jesus to supply your every need. See his heart for you. And then see his heart for the oppressed and the poor. And let's respond in repentance in faith and obedience as he sends us out to be his hands and feet in our world. Father, we are grateful for your grace and mercy that you would leave the riches of heaven and become poor, essentially homeless, not owning anything. So that we who are poor could become rich and inherit the heavens, and the earth. Receive a relationship with the God who created all things. We are so rich, not just materially, but spiritually. We're so rich. We have everything we need. And so, Father, break, up, break our heart so that our heart is your heart. Help us to see what you see. Help us to love like you love for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.